Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you love us and care for us. We lift our sister to you and ask that you would, you would be with her, strengthen her, bring healing to her body. Be with the whole family as they, they sort out what's going on. Minister through the doctors and the nurses. And I thank you, Father God, for Sherry and her wonderful, wonderful commitment to you. Father, I also lift up the children this morning. As they go downstairs, I ask that they would be filled with the truth, that they would know that God is real and the Bible is real. Teach them, Father God. Give a special anointing to the teachers and the helpers downstairs. And I thank you, Father, as a church, we have opportunity to pass the truth of the kingdom of God on to the next generation. And Father, I ask that you would be with us through your word, that you would transform our thinking and encourage us and grow us into men and women of faith. Thank you, Father. And may these words that I speak this morning glorify you, more of you and less of me. Thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Children are excused. This morning, um, I'm starting a new series, and we've entitled this series, Heroes of the Faith. The foundational passage for this series is going to be Hebrews 11, 1 through 14, which is a very familiar passage, and it's extraordinary. It, it, it really is an extraordinary passage because it really helps us understand faith and how faith should work in our lives. To begin this morning, I want to give us some, some historical context to what is happening in this passage. The author, obviously, in chapter 11, is going to speak about faith. In the first century, when this was written, the Jews were consumed with the idea of works being necessary to please God. You had to do something. It was your responsibility. As the, the church age began, Judaism was no longer the supernatural, God-given spiritual system that God had originally given to his people. Things had changed. Self-effort, works, self-glorification, and legalistic requirements had replaced God's system of faith in him as the source of everything, including salvation. In God's system, the works that God expected his people to, to show were the result of faith. Faith in God produced works. That was, that was God's plan. Good works being a byproduct of faith and never a means of salvation. The human self-imposed ethical and moral systems and attempts to be reconciled to God were not pleasing to God and were actually rejected by God and continue to be rejected by God. Listen to how God reveals this through his prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That is so valuable for us. So what is faith? And in this passage that we're looking at, the author of Hebrews begins the chapter by giving us a definition of faith. Verse 1, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. The definition of faith teaches us biblical faith is living in a hope for the promises of God. That uh, Not just a, a little bit of hope or the hope we have like we do at Christmas for what we hope we're going to get. But this is a hope for the promises of a God that is so real, there is absolute assurance. Absolute assurance. The heroes that we're going to look at in this series viewed the promises of God to be so real that they based every aspect of their lives upon God's promises. They took God at His word. They knew God would not lie And he was powerful enough to do exactly what he promised. I think we get confused a little bit about faith. Faith faith is not a, a vague feeling. It's not a longing that something might come to pass. That's very often how we think of faith in our culture. Biblical faith is an absolute certainty in what God has revealed. An absolute certainty. And this absolute certainty doesn't diminish, even in the face of trials and struggles that that people encounter while living in this world system. Biblical faith is not tarnished by what the world considers unreal or impossible. I mean, if you look through Scripture, the people of, of God that exhibit this kind of faith, they did some incredible things, and they saw some incredible things that we might go, well, that's impossible. Biblical faith is an unmovable assurance that God is real. His words, promises, actions, attributes, holiness, justice, and glory are all absolutes. Biblical faith does not consider chance as an answer to what happens in the world. Biblical faith doesn't doesn't look at chance in any way. And and the reality, if you're you're living by faith, there's nothing by chance. And that really goes against our culture. Biblical saving faith is faith in the truth of God as revealed in Scripture. And by, by that revelation, by it being connected to what God has shown us and who He is, there is substance to the believer's faith. Verse, verse 1, the, 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 the definition, it begins with assurance of things hoped for. Assurance means complete trust or confidence in someone or something. The word assurance comes from the Greek hupotasis, which, which means the reality, essence, and basis of something the reality and real content of something. And the word was very often used to communicate reality or a guarantee. 
So so when we talk about this kind of assurance, we're talking about a guarantee. We're we're talking about something that cannot be changed, cannot be removed. It's a guarantee. The natural human, the way all of us naturally are, trusts his or her physical senses. We, We all do this. We put our faith in the things that we can see, hear, taste, and feel. And as all of us can think about, very often those senses may lie to us. But God cannot lie. He is true. So, so this kind of faith is not based on what we, we hear. And, and one of the, the metaphors that I, I, I like has to do with being a pilot. And that was something that I, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to do. So I started through some of the training and then I discovered that the the rudder pedals were so far away, I'm too short to fly. <laughs> Not really. When a pilot is flying and they reach a certain level of their training, they are called instrument rated. And they are trained to fly the plane totally relying on the instruments on the panel. And I remember flying with a, a very good friend of mine who was a flight instructor. And we were in a very nice plane, and we took off, and, and he's flying, and basically he's, he's running some errands, and he's putting in some hours for his license. And he purposely flies into a very thick bank of clouds. And I'm sitting there, he's flying, and I'm, I'm sitting on the other side of the plane, and as we're flying through these clouds, my sensation was that he took that plane and just went like this, and we were flying upside down. And there was a while in there, I didn't know where up and down really was. Because my eyesight and my ears and everything, all of those senses that God gave me were being deceived. I didn't have anything to trust. Well, I knew enough about the the things of flying, and I looked over, and sure enough, there, the artificial horizon that says we're flying absolutely level, we're going along, you know, it, it, it was all there. I wasn't, we weren't upside down. We trust those things of our natural life too much sometimes. And faith is so different. I'm going to have faith in God because he never lies. His truth is always going to be correct. Biblical faith, the faith that saves, has a reality, a substance, and an essence that's based on the perfections of God. It's something that you can trust. This provides the believer with firm ground to stand on while we wait for whatever God's promises are, for whatever He has in the future. The the definition in Hebrews goes on, and and he, He connects another term to this This definition, conviction, conviction of things not seen. And conviction comes from a Greek term that can have the meaning of proof or test. And it it was used in such a way that conviction implies a response. There's there's got to be, there needs to be this, this outward visible action that's related to the inward spiritual assurance. So we have this inward spiritual total and complete assurance that God is true and his word is true 
And then we have this conviction that is showing up on the outside. The person with biblical faith lives out that faith because his mind or her mind and their spirit, so your, your mind and your spirit are convinced of the truth that's believed. So that directs how you live. The next part of the definition that he gives is in verse 2. He says, For by it, it being faith, the people of old received their commendation. Their commendation. In some versions, it's going to say gained approval. And I kind of like that, gained approval. In that part of the definition, the people of old is a reference to the Old Testament saints who lived by faith. So the saints that we're going to look at are, are saints who we're going to spend all of eternity with. They're saved. And these people receive God's approval, their commendation, because of their faith and nothing else. It isn't anything else that they did that, that God says, these are my heroes of faith. It's their, their faith. They didn't do something else. They just trusted God. And the reality of this is, and it's important for us, is there is only one way to please God. Only one way to please God. And that's with faith. No other way. We see this later in the chapter, and we'll spend some more time there when we get there. It's in um, chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If our heart's desire is to please God, we're going to do it with faith. Anything we do, anything, not just religious things, not just church stuff, but anything we do is meaningless without faith. We might undertake great things. Who knows what that might be? We might undertake great things for God, but if we do them without faith, doing them trusting our own ability and understand, uh, understanding and strength, those undertakings are worthless and they're not approved by God. In some ways, that's a little scary. If we do things, great things, no matter what we would do, for God, with faith in Him, trusting His ability, His wisdom, and His strength, God approves and is pleased. Now, now we very often put this into the context of just religious stuff. It's just the church stuff. But that's not where God wants us to live. That's a part of it. But this idea of living by faith is in everything. Do you, do you function as a family by faith? Do you work in your relationship of, of marriage by faith? Are you raising your kids by faith? Do you do your job by faith? Do you function in faith? So this is something that can be applied to every area of, of, of life. Are we trusting God or ourselves? The reality of, uh, that, that's behind this in many ways is that people throughout history have been caught up in a variety of different things because there's a, a, a gap, there's something missing. 
And people get caught up in drugs and alcohol and pornography and money and possessions because they run out of options, usually we would call them rational options, in life. What do I mean? Well, they're, they're seeking some way to find happiness. They're, they're trying to find meaning and purpose. This is universal. Human beings want to have meaning and purpose. So where do they go? They go to substances and things that are not healthy. And some people look to astrology, reincarnation, witchcraft, and cults. Because they're, they're looking for some way to belong. People get involved with terrible, horrible cults because they're accepted. It's a huge part of why people are attracted. They want to have purpose and meaning. I think that in each one of us, each human being, there's, a, there's really, in a way, a desperation. And those that are outside of Christ, there's a, a, there's a bigger desperation because they don't have a life of faith in God. There's no substance. What are you going to trust? Politics? Let me know how that works out for you. God is the only answer. You, you can only find that place where you feel accepted in a real way in God. He is the only rational answer for finding purpose and meaning. Since, since God created Adam and Eve, some people have believed God. And they have lived this faith. And that's, that's what we see in Hebrews 11. And for those people and other people that, that have been in history, their life has been and is meaningful, has purpose, based on God. Now, these people, these heroes of the faith and, and those around us that we can go, man, that's a, that's a person of faith. It's not... It's not a blind faith. It's not making a, a blind leap. Like um, in, uh, in the movie, um, The Last Crusade, Harrison Ford, you know, he comes at, towards the end and he's, he's at the, that deep crevasse and he's, he's looking across there and he's got to get from here to the, the other side. And, and remember, he puts his leg out like this because he doesn't see the, the pathway. That's blind faith. That's not what God's talking about. That's not what these heroes of the faith had. The faith that we're looking at is, is not blind. There's something there. It might look scary if God showed it to us. And we might have to go, I'm not sure I'm going to trust that. He says, trust me. The, this faith that we're talking about is not limited to intellectual assent. What does that term mean? Well, that intellectual assent is making decisions in our head without the commitment of our heart. And none of the actions prove that faith is actually evident. I've heard lots of people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And, and especially around different times of some d disasters, 9-11, uh, the big Thompson flood. There's, there's people I've been around that they talk about their faith in, in, in God. But then as the disaster is kind of worked out and it kind of goes away, they don't have any faith in God. There's nothing there. There's no substance. That's 
intellectual assent. The people of faith have complete assurance and confidence and hope of what God has promised to do. And we're going to see this in the heroes in this series. And there's different things that each one of these heroes is going to teach us. Today, we begin with Abel. Go right back to the beginning here. Verse 4 of chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is really cool. Let's put it into some perspective. Adam and Eve, you can't say they weren't a couple that had faith. You can't can't say that. But their faith would have been extremely different than the faith of all of their descendants. Because they had seen God face to face. So their understanding of God, their their faith in God is, is predicated on something totally different than all the rest of us. They had perfect access to God in the paradise of the garden. We also know from Scripture that Eve conceived two sons. Now, people get confused about this. She didn't just have two sons. There were some daughters involved, and there were probably a whole lot of others that she conceived. The Bible just speaks of these two, okay? And three, because another one came to life. But anyway, those that came after Adam and Eve were born outside of the garden, and they were born into sin. They were born sinners, just like you and I. In the narrative of the Bible, Abel then is the first man of faith as we understand faith. So look at the story in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And you're probably familiar with the rest of the story. Cain's anger took over and he kills his brother. Let's sort this out. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. In this story, we find Cain and Abel had some place to do this sacrificing. There was some kind of altar to do this. It existed. We also see that there, it's implied, but there seems to be an appointed time for the sacrifice. It, it, It was the proper time for them to bring the sacrifice. And it's logical that God was probably the one who established that time because we see him doing that later in history. He established when. So I believe that what we see here is God said, this is where you'll do it. This is when you're going to do it. And we also know that God designed the way to worship. Cain and Abel learned this stuff from someplace. And at that time, there's really only two sources. One would be mom and dad. Mom and dad taught them. Okay, and I believe that that's part of it. But we also see from Scripture that God's relating to people in a different way at this time. So they may have actually learned this directly from God. 
They learned how to worship. The acceptable worship we see is also a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. This was a sin offering. This is significant because this shows that sacrifice for sin has always been God's design. Revelation from God was the basis for Abel's offering. He had received information from someone about proper sacrifice, which produced faith and produced being accepted. We also know that God was the one who began the sacrifice anyway. We'll see that some more in a minute. As I go through this, and as I looked at a variety of different sources, there's, there's really three things that you can see in Abel's, in, in Abel's faith. Because of Abel's faith, he offered a better sacrifice than his brother. His faith produced a better sacrifice. Because he offered an acceptable sacrifice, he received righteousness. What that means is he was saved. You're going to meet this guy in heaven. Okay, because he offered by faith, okay? And because of his obedient faith, his testimony continues to proclaim righteousness is by faith. That's, that is so powerful for us. Now, let's, let's look a little deeper because God spends a lot of time with Cain, and very often we spend a lot of time there because the Word does. Cain's offering was not what God prescribed. Blood offerings always came first. The offering for sin. What was the first sacrifice that we see in God's revealed word? It was when God provided animal skins for Adam and Eve because of their sinful rebellion. To cover their sin, he killed something. A life of faith then begins with dealing with sin, agreeing with God that we are sinners, that we are worthy of death and have this incredible need for forgiveness. We continue with lives of faith as we accept His plan. Where does that take us? Well, we have to admit the fact that we are still sinners. It goes on. Abel, by faith, obediently did what God said to do. So Abel easily, just in his faith, went, this is what God has prescribed, this is what I'm going to do. But Cain didn't have that faith. He didn't trust God. And he was as a result, disobedient to God, and he was judged. God's acceptable offering for sin was the sacrifice of an animal. So Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Cain could have done exactly the same thing. He chose not to. The difference between Cain and Abel is Abel gave what God wanted. Cain... Cain gave what Cain wanted. Abel was obedient, and Cain was disobedient. Abel acknowledged his sin. Cain did not. Abel, in a way, you could, you could kind of put some paraphrasing to it. Abel approached God and said, Lord, this is what you said you wanted. You promised that if I brought it to you, you would forgive my sin. I believe you and trust you. Here is the sacrifice you want. That's Abel. 
Cain, on the other hand, decided to worship God in his own way. And in reality, that's in the same tradition as his parents. He's doing the same thing mom and dad did. He did his own thing. In effect, Cain was denying his sin, and he was rebellious toward God. This is also a picture for us of false religion. False religion is coming to God in any way other than the way that God has prescribed. All false religion, every one of them, doesn't matter. Any false religion says that there is a way other than God's way to him. You can see that in every cult, every false religion. They come up with some other way that that is supposed to get you to nirvana or to God or something. That's why they're false. They don't do it. Proverbs puts it this way, 14.12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but his end is the way to death. Cain only wanted to give outward appearance of worship. He wanted it to be seen outwardly, but he was actually a hypocrite, only wanting to please his own desires. His sacrifice was nothing more than religious activity designed by his own thinking. This story of Cain and Abel reminds me of a parable. Um, Luke 18.9, Jesus is telling this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Like the Pharisee in the parable, Cain went home unjustified, condemned. Abel, like the repentant tax collector, went home justified, saved. Abel's offering represented the obedience of faith. He willingly brought God what God asked, and he brought the very best that he had. We see in Abel's sacrifice then a foreshadowing of the cross, and it really works out interesting in the history of Israel. Here we have in Genesis, we have Abel's sacrifice, a lamb, one lamb for one person. Later in history came the Passover, one lamb for one family. And this history plays out. God, God's continuing to, to reveal truth. There came the Day of Atonement, one lamb for one nation. And then finally, the glorious revelation, the, the most glorious one that, that, that God has ever produced, 
It's Good Friday. One lamb for the whole world. And not only just is it a sacrifice for the whole world, it's eternal. So it's adequate. It's adequate so there doesn't need to be any other lamb sacrificed. So we see this progression of what God has revealed about how he wants his sacrifices to be made. God accepted Abel's faith and obedient sacrifice. And Abel was made righteous. He's a saved Old Testament saint. Why? Because he trusted God. He stood righteous before God because he had faith in God. He did not even receive the Holy Spirit. We make a big deal out of that. Oh, when you're saved, you know you're saved because you got the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit acts. And that's all true for us. That's not true for Abel. He didn't receive the Holy Spirit, but he was saved. He had God's approval and God's righteousness, it says, credited to him. It's it's the same thing. Faith in God, trust in God. Saving faith is also always obedient. Jesus said this in John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The reality of this saving faith is that we can't claim to have it. We can't have saving faith in God and continually disregard his word. That's a struggle for us. At the end of Hebrews 11.4, we read another fabulous statement about Abel. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That's incredible. Abel still speaks. How? There's three things that he's continuing. His, the testimony of his life is still communicating. What are those three things? Man comes to God by faith, not works. Man must accept and obey God's revelation above his own reason and self-will. It's all about God. And the third one is that sin is severely punished. He's still speaking. This is Abel's timeless three-point sermon. Every sermon's got to have three points. I don't know if that's really true because I never count them. That sermon could be titled, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. This is a testimony of a man's life that continues to this day. So I ask you as we close this morning, are you bringing an acceptable sacrifice of faith to God? Or are you a religious hypocrite? Which one? The other question I think it's important for us to ponder. What does your faith speak? What will your faith continue to speak? That's huge. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us your truth. I thank you, Father God, that we can put our faith in you and we have substance 
to rest on. I ask, Father God, that you would help each one of us to continually see your glory and your greatness. Holy Spirit, stir up inside of us. Help us, Holy Spirit. Teach us and guide us. Instruct us in the ways of saving faith, biblical faith. Father, thank you that all of this access to you is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us. Help us to live lives that speak faith in you. In Christ's name, amen.